there's this Bantu term, Buntu, which loosely translates that I am because we are. You can only be your best self if everyone else is their best self. And so if there's one thing all this rambling has done, if you take away from this, is that you don't have to denigrate someone to be great yourself. Your competition is with you, it's not with someone else. So don't underestimate yourself. Bet on yourself all the time. Hey, hey, I'm Bond Koo, the host of Design Lab. We took off last week because of the U.S. presidential elections. It was an emotionally exhausting week for us. But this week, I'm feeling hopeful for our country, probably for the first time in four years. On today's show, we have Craig Wilkins. I'm a huge fan of his. This podcast is a bit longer than our usual ones, but you're going to want to listen to every single minute. We had trouble editing out anything because it's so good. Thank you for commenting on the podcast. Listener Micah FC, who's a former architectural designer and applying to med school states, this podcast is my bread and butter. The content is original, approachable, and engaging. Another listener commented that the podcast shows the best side of how to design healthcare to make human lives better. Thanks, Adam, MD, MPH, for that feedback. Craig Wilkins, he's an architect, activist, artist, author, and academic. His work focuses on the intersection of design and social justice. He's the creative director of the Wilkins Project, and he teaches architecture at the University of Michigan. Craig is a leading scholar on African-Americans in architecture. He won the Cooper Hewitt National Design Award in 2017. In this episode, I asked Craig about hip-hop architecture, urban acupuncture, and spatial justice. Learn how the bad design of environment and urban policies have negatively impacted the health of black communities in the U.S. and what we can do to change that. Here's my conversation with Craig Wilkins. Craig, thanks for joining me on Design Lab. Hey, thanks for having me. I, I appreciate the invitation. All right. So I have a lot of questions. I've done a lot of research about you. So let's just jump right into Uh-oh. it. Craig, <laughs> okay. if you're at a party and someone asked you what you did for a living, how would you respond? I'd first say, have a seat, get a drink. <laughs> uh, and then I would probably say, primarily, I'm an architect, but I'm also an artist, an activist, an author and an academic. And I really move between those things very seamlessly. So I have to answer in that way because to answer any other way is to be less than honest. It was hard for me to try to understand who you exactly are doing research on this because you're an amazing writer, you're an educator, you're a theorist. You talk, you write a lot about spatial justice. Yeah. What is that? Well, in a sense, it is about access. It's about access to the benefits of public space. I say this almost all the time. My students have uh, actually joined in when I say the first word because they've heard it so much. But space is life. I mean, it, it really is life. It's where you access all the benefits of, of being alive. It has, to, it has um, access to space the benefits of, of, of healthy living, of 
of jobs, of clean air, of leisure, schools, and all of that comes from your ability to access public space. Mm. And when your access to space is curtailed by design or by accident, most often it's by design through things like redlining, through things like you know, inaccessible curbs and, and streets, the poor public transportation, those are really sort of physical things. But then the, the sort of emotional and psychological things of being felt as if you're not supposed to be in a particular place. You can't go to a park with great amenities because you are, you know, being observed or in some way being felt, being made to feel as if you are not supposed to be there. You know, it is the, you know, it's the barbecue Becky calling the police because you're having a barbecue that they don't particularly want you to have. There's nothing illegal about it, but the fact of the matter is that people just don't want you to have access to the kinds of benefits that other people have. Mm. So in a sense, that's what spatial justice is. It's about trying to provide equal access to the benefits of space, which ultimately are the benefits of life for everyone. Mm. And I have, have some questions I'll ask you later about that relationship between space and health, but I've been reading your writing and you talk about this thing called hip hop architecture. Did you coin that term? And what, what is that? I don't know that I coined that. I think around the same time I was working on this and I was kind of working in a vacuum and there were other people's work, other people working in a vacuum as well. And then all of a sudden we became familiar with each other's work and we've sort of coalesced around this idea. And it's really been very fruitful, just theoretically, but also practically. And I guess the best way to sort of describe hip hop architecture is for us, architecture is both a noun and a verb. It is both a structure and a process. And it's a way of participating in the production of architecture that centers Black life and Black culture as its foundation. And if you want to just sort of boil it down to a very simple phrase, I think mm -hmm. the there was an exhibit that I was a part of in St. Paul and the, the writer, the journalist asked that very same question. And actually he coined, he said, oh, hip hop architecture is basically hip hop culture in built form. Mm. And I think that is probably the easiest way to describe what that is. I was looking at all your projects in Detroit and I, Love this one uh, that's centered around urban acupunctures. And here's something that you wrote. The urban acupunctures are small architectures that relieve the pressures of everyday life, often built with salvage and repurposed materials in the city's neglected spaces. One example I found was when you converted old doors into bus stops in Detroit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is that an example of urban acupuncture? Absolutely. It, and it's also a, a really, it's a small, but it's a really good example of hip hop ar architecture, the, the, the philosophy, the thinking behind it, the ideology behind it. So if you think about, you know, the development of hip hop itself, it grew in a place where nothing was supposed to grow. Mm. 
in the Bronx in the 70s, a discarded part of the city. Disinvestment was rampant. People were, in a sense, forgotten about. And so if you're a young, young man, a young woman growing up in that environment, you can either do a couple things. One, you can accept that the world, the, the, the view that you are worth less than every, everybody else. Or you can decide that that's not the case. And even if I can't make other people believe that, I am going to live my life in a way that sort of says that's not true, okay? So at the beginning, when hip hop started, you know, we would have, you would have people who were, and if you listen to some of the early hip hop music, you know, that's one of the reasons that you hear all these grandiose boasts, like I'm bigger, I'm better, I'm deafer, I'm this, right? Because mm-hmm. it is, it's a pushback against someone or something or some institution or some municipality saying that you're nothing. Mm-hmm. And this is a way of saying, no, that's not true. I am something. And so in a way, it's, a, it's, it's naming yourself. Mm-hmm. It's taking ownership of, of who you are and how you're going to be defined. It's, a, it's an act of uh, desperation, but it's also an act of agency. Hmm. You know, I refuse to accept your perspective of who I am and what my options are. And so, so you think about that and you think about sort of you're living in a situation where there's all this disinvestment. So if you're a kid with artistic um, sensibilities, you know, there's no investment in an art school hmm. or in an art program. If you are a, a, a student with, you know, musical aspirations, there are no music programs in your schools anymore. So what do you do with this creative energy, right? Mm. And also around this time, the, 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 this is sort of, ans- well, it's not ancillary, it's actually divorced from this, but it's also very integral to this. At this time, you know, CDs were becoming much more rampant as the method of production for music, right? Mm -hmm. So turntables were not necessarily seen as the wave of the future. Mm -hmm. So people were buying their CDs and their CD players and getting rid of their turntables. So you have all this confluence of things, this all these sort of discarded things, discarded people, discarded technology, discarded interest and funding, and all these things sort of come together. So you have kids who are going, well, if I can't play a horn, you know, my folks have these records. I've got a turntable. Maybe I can find that horn in a song mm. and then I can loop it. So I can't play it by my lips, but I can play it with my fingers. And so this is, this is one of the tenets of sort of hip hop architecture is sort of taking discarded materials and using them in ways that they are not designed to be used. A turntable is a passive instrument. You take a an album, you put it on the turntable, you put down the needle and you walk away and the music happens. It wasn't designed to have your fingers on it. It wasn't designed to go backwards. It wasn't designed to go backwards and forwards quickly. It wasn't designed to do any of that stuff. But these are kids who are using what their environment has provided for them to do something that they really want to do. Mm. And in a sense, they are reimagining the ways in which materials can be used. And that's one of the tenets of hip hop architecture is to reimagine what was considered discarded into something that is a substantial or substantive. Mm. 
you're just blowing my mind. I've never heard that narrative around around hip hop, and that is so cool. What and can you describe that the abandoned the how you converted old doors into bus stops in Detroit, and sure. what was the impact on the community and people who saw that? Take what I just sort of ex- uh, kind of explained is sort of context about you know uh, hip hop architecture. So. In Detroit, the, the bus system, the tr- public transportation system is awful. Again, this goes back to you know spatial injustice, right? The bus transportation system, the public transportation system here is awful. Sometimes you wait two and a half, three hours for a bus to come. Now think about that. Like if you two and a half, three hours still? For yes, for a bus to come. Oh now think gosh. about this. You have a job to get to. So that means you have to build in three extra hours to get to work and three extra hours to get home. That's literally another work day. That's another work day just to get to work. Now, imagine if you are a single mother or a single father and you've got kids, that's six dead hours that you can't be with your kids. You can't be cooking dinner. You can't you can't engage them in their schoolwork. You literally are letting someone else watch them for that time. So you're not influencing them. And that happens every day. Mm. That's ridiculous. It's and, ridiculous. And I, th- I think of people who have chronic medical conditions and oh, the absolutely. simple act of going to a 15-minute doctor's appointment yes. can turn into an all-day affair. All, it is all, it's an all-day affair. And- Here's a, so this was done in, we started in, I think, 2012, we got some funding, and then I think we finally ended the program in 2014. So statistics may have changed somewhat, but I doubt very seriously, the bus system is still very, not very responsive. But yeah, so you think about, at the time, the majority of people who were riding the bus in Detroit were elderly and high school kids. Hmm. So in the summer, literally, you can't buy stuff like ice cream because by the time you get home, it's water. So you have the elderly waiting for buses that, that don't run promptly, and then they have to stand for three hours waiting for those buses because the benches and the, the coverings at the city for at city bus stops are few and far between. There were, I think at the time, if I can remember correctly, there are 6,000 bus stops in Detroit at the time. And I think there were somewhere around 395 that had places for you to sit, hmm. whether it was just a bench or as an actual sort of covering where you would be uh, protected from um, the elements. So what do you do about that? As a, as, a, as a designer, what do you do about that as a person who is sort of concerned with this notion of justice, this notion of space, this notion of people having equal access to the benefits of life? So there's one other thing that was sort of converging at this time as well, is that the city was tearing down, had a program to tear down 2,000 uh, abandoned homes a year. And that program was to run for 10 years. Now, that's 20,000 homes that are being torn down mm. in the city of Detroit. 
because they've been abandoned. They, some of them have been falling down, but some of them, you know, they were just in need of rehab. That's all. But because there was no one living there, the argument was, well, this is bringing down the property values in the neighborhood and contributing to, you know, perhaps nefarious activities. So they, you know, started this program. Now, where is that material going to go? Right. That material is going into uh, a landfill. And that is just creating monstrous green uh, greenhouse effects because the material is just deteriorating in that place. And it's just it is unnecessary. It's unnecessary. And it is a it's a hazard. It's a hazard. So you have buildings coming down. You have no buses, no bus, no seating at bus stops. And you have buses that are require at least seating. So we can't do anything about the buses as designers. Mm-hmm. We can do something as citizens. We can protest. We can, you know, write the mayor. You know, we can do those things as a, as a, as a citizen. And we did. But as a designer, what can you do? So we thought in, in a manner of a hip hop architect. So we see these doors that are getting tossed away. Nobody wants them. Nobody's going to use them. There are studs and other things in the building that are going to be tossed away. No one's going to use them. So why don't we go into these buildings that are about to be torn down because they have, you know, you, you know, they're, they've been tagged and mm-hmm. there's a list. Let's take the doors. Let's take as much of the material that's usable as possible. Mm-hmm. And so we took doors, we took studs and we hired artists and we made places for people to sit. Hmm. The idea was if we can't deal with the times for the buses to run, we can at least make your weight humane. Hmm. And so that was, that was an example of, you know, perhaps hip hop architectural thinking and also this uh, notion of urban acupunctures. You know, we're trying to make small, we're trying to relieve the everyday stress of being in a city that is not quite working in a way, in a manner that it should. So those doors were similar to the records that were being used by the early hip hop artists. Yeah, you're not supposed to sit on doors. You're not supposed to use them as backstops. You're not supposed to combine them with studs to sort of make this uh, a place for you know, folks to sit and, and be protected from the elements. You're not supposed to paint on the, well, I guess you could paint on doors, but you're not supposed to do that stuff. And we didn't ask permission. We just did them one night. I mean, one day you're standing at this bus stop as it always is. There's, you know, nothing to sit and you're waiting for the buses and you're prepared to wait, you know, for however long it comes. And then the next day there's a place for you to sit. And there they're not only functional, I've seen pictures that they're beautiful and you transform this mundane, not so pleasant experience, maybe into a delightful one for someone who has to do that every day. Well, that's, you know, so that's the other thing about riding the bus, right? Like when you see someone standing, waiting for the bus in the cold, in the rain, no covering you and you're in a car, you look at them and you say, thank God, that's not me. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's, you know, that person does not have the where for all that I have, right? So there's a stigma with 
riding the bus. There's a stigma with waiting for the bus. And it's, it's not as if, you know, people who are dependent on public transportation don't understand that, right? You, you tell your boss, I, you know, I couldn't get here because, you know, I, I'm late because the bus didn't come on time today. And there's no sympathy there. Hmm. There's a, there's sort of, a, in a sense, there's a certain level of disdain there. Why can't you just get a car, you know? Well, I can't afford a car. Or maybe we have a car. There's two of us or three of us in the house. And one person has a better paying job. So they take the car. And the, other, the, the rest of us have to take the bus, hmm. right? So it's not, there's a stigma that doesn't need to be there. So if it, at the very least, we can make that weight a joyful one, hmm. or at least a more humane one. So that people driving by, by, oh, look, that's a nice place. In, in, in a sense, you know, they're talking about the people there as well. I'm curious to know about your personal journey. Like what influenced you to dive into this type of work that's very socially justice minded? Well, that's a, that's a good question. I, I tend to, how can I answer this? Okay. I've never really had any plan for my career or my life, actually, beyond some <laughs> vague notion of making my folks proud, making an extremely good living, and being good at something. And architecture was sort of the means by which I chose to do so, but it could have been anything else. The goals would have been the same. And my, my folks have... They're, they're, they're gone now, but my folks provided me with a sense of self-confidence and self-worth that far exceeded the reality at the time. So, What do you mean by that? Well, I, you know, I, <laughs> they made me believe I could do just about anything if I wanted to. And, you know, at 12, 13 years old, that's not really quite true. <laughs> There's some things that you just can't do unless you're older or you're wiser, or you know, but they, you know, they never put any sort of boundaries on of what I should expect from myself. And, and this is in, uh, you grew up in Chicago, I right? grew up in Chicago. Okay. I'm from Chicago too. So All right. we have that in common. Yeah. So that's why I've never been afraid to sort of jump at opportunities. If I see something interesting, I'll pursue it no matter when or where. But because of that, but because I've been in many sort of different locations over my life, I've lived in, let's see, DC, Orlando, Houston, Tempe, New York, Minneapolis, Baton Rouge, Portland, Warsaw, Poland, Salvador, Brazil, Quetzalcoatl, Guatemala. I think that's it. That's all. I Wait, are you, are you kidding me? These aren't these aren't places that you just visited. These are places no, these that you actually lived, lived and worked. Yes. Yeah. Wow. And so, because I've had that sort of peripatetic life, over time, I've become really in tune to the injustices that people have to deal with, and it's not just in this country. It's it's all over, and I've I. As an architect, I had to sort of question how much of what I do leads to either enacting this kind of injustice or keeping this kind of injustice in place. And, and the answers weren't 
kind to the architectural profession. And it just got to a point where it was just not something that I, I felt that there, I needed to be able to sleep at night and still be a part of this field that I enjoy. And so how was I going to reconcile the two? And it's not the path that I started out on. It certainly wasn't anything that was taught to me in school. Is my living my life led to me thinking more deeply about whether I was living it in a way in which it would make my folks proud. Mm. And this was not, I came to the conclusion that I had to do something differently if I wanted to, to do that. Were your parents designers or architects? No, my father was, uh, <laughs> this is interesting. So my father was, uh, he was an IT guy. He was the chief systems analyst for the Chicago Board of Education. So he was the one who ran all the software that got people their checks and, and wrote all the uh, stuff for, you know, inventories and things of that nature. So that was his gig. And he really wanted me to follow that. But that was not in the cards for me. My mom was a, uh, um, she was a president of a bank branch. She was a branch president of what used to be called the, you'll remember this, uh, First National Bank of Chicago, which is now Chase. So she was, yes, yeah, so she was a banker. And this is the interesting part. So I was in my fourth year of architecture school and I would always come home for Thanksgiving and Christmas, but the projects I was working on didn't take a break. I had to continue to work when I was at home. So my grandfather brought me this big drafting desk and it was really great. And so I would be, you know, I'd pull it out when I came home and I'd continue to do my work. And my father was always interested in it. And he would always ask uh, some very kind of insightful questions for someone who's not an architect. And my mother let it slip one time that I was home that my father actually studied architecture for three years at Howard University. And I said, well, why didn't anybody tell me? And he said, because we wanted you to make the choice on your own. Wow. You follow in your father's footsteps. Wow. Now... Architecture is not a very diverse field. You are a black man in architecture. Is that, is that unusual? Well, yes, <laughs> it is quite, well, I, I don't know if unusual is the right term. Let's just say that there aren't a lot of practitioners of color, certainly not a lot of black practitioners. We make up somewhere, depending on the numbers, anywhere between two and 4% of the profession here in the United States. That, that's, that's very actually similar to medicine. In medical school, only about 3% of medical students are black males. And mm -hmm. that's actually been the same since the late 1970s. So in the four, pa past 40 years, that number has not changed in medicine. In well, for us, it's been 50 years. Wow. At every other, I don't know, ethnic Ethnic origin is probably a, uh, a better way to say this, but every other ethnicity, mm -hmm. their numbers have increased mm -hmm. over the past 50 years. Gender equity has increased over the past 50 years. Ours are the only numbers that have stayed flat for 50 years. So yeah, I am usually considered an anomaly and it is, yeah, that's just the norm. So no, it's not, it's not, you know, there, there, we just, just had our 500th 
hundredth registered African-American woman in the United States. 500. That's, you register you know as that. an architect? As a you licensed mean? architect, yes. That, in, the his, in the history in of... In the history of oh architecture. Gosh. They know each other. It's like literally you could know every black female architect in the United States. Yeah, so there's not a lot of us. Why is that? Oh, there are a host of reasons for that. The, the first reason is that people don't know what architects do. You know, mm -hmm. they kind of believe, well, what's an architect? You know, oh, they do houses, right? Okay, yes, but not just that. So you don't see any architects growing up when you're in, you know, communities of color. You don't know that it's even a possibility. You can't grow up to be something you don't know exists. So that's one. Two is it is an incredibly expensive field to pursue. You know, it, it, it's born out of this sort of white gentleman's lifestyle where this is a pursuit. You know, you already have the funds to support yourself. So you want to pursue this thing called architecture. Mm. So it's an incredibly expensive thing to do. And so if you're thinking about architecture and you have, you know, a certain amount of capital to go to school, and if you're smart, you're weighing that capital against what am I going to get in return for this? You know, this, this is, it's a hard argument. It's a hard thing to sell, right? Because you could you spend that money and become a lawyer. Mm -hmm. You might even be able to spend that money and go to med school, right? You could be an engineer. So, and those, you look at the starting salaries when you come out, you go like, wow, I'm spending all this money. This is my starting salary when I can spend pretty much the same amount and that's my starting salary. Why would I pursue this? It doesn't make economic sense. So that's another calculation that, comes into play. The third thing is that this is considered a field, a creative field, mm -hmm. right? So I used to run an after-school program for interested high school kids just to do this kinds of things that I'm talking about, to introduce them to architecture as a possible career choice, to show them what it's about. We'd go on field trips, we'd do projects, we'd meet with community folks, we'd do the, the sort of the entire thing. And I'd have a, you know, a, a meeting at the, when they were registering for their, to, to sort of tell people about the program every year at the beginning of the year and parents would bring their kids in. And invariably, I didn't have to convince the kids to come to the program. I had to convince the parents to let their kids come to the program. And the reason was, and I, I, I get it. The reason was I said, look, you can be creative as a hobby. I want my kid to get a job. And I want them to make money. And you're telling me that this is going to be, you know, their potential starting salary. And this, this is not what I want from my child. This is great. I appreciate it. This is I, it's wonderful. I want them to be in the program because I want them to get, you know, a, a full range of opportunities. But I'm not going to push them to become an architect. I just don't. My it. parents would have never let me become an architect. See? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's another consideration. The another consideration is you look around your environment. Let's say you're a young uh, kid of color. You look around your environment. There isn't a whole lot 
of architecture that's inspiring. As a matter mm -hmm. of fact, it looks oppressive. Mm -hmm. It keeps you from accessing, you know, again, the benefits of space. So well, yeah, why, and a lot of these you, inner city schools look like prisons. Absolutely. So why would you think that's something you would want to pursue? Why would you want to inflict that on other kinds of communities? This is just this. Is, I want to get as far away from this as possible. Mm. I don't want to be part of that field. I want to be away from that field. So those are just a few. That's, those are just a few. I'm not even talking about once you choose to come to architecture, the kind of overt and covert oppression that Black students have to deal with from faculty and from administration and the kind of lack of representation in the curriculum, mm. the lack of re representation in the faculty itself. I'm usually the only African-American faculty. Not right now, we have three at Michigan and we have, what, 76 faculty members? Wow. So it is, it's a lot to go through to come out on the other side and not only come out sane, mm. but come out with a degree and actually practice and actually make a really good living at it. Mm -hmm. It is, and people do that. They do it all, they've been doing it since the, the, since the 1800s, but it is not easy mm. at all. I want to shift gears and talk about architecture and health. And you said something that a lot of people don't know what architects actually do or maybe the power of architecture. And you wrote something in July, and I'm just going to read what you wrote because I really like this. You said, space is life. It really is a healthy life, healthy food choices, leisure activity, clean air, job opportunities, transportation, all those things come from being able to access the benefit of space. Do you have thoughts on what the relationship is between the built environment and health? Oh, absolutely. It is intricately connected. So it's, it's a matter of record that the kinds of industries that are, let's say, environmentally problematic, you know, chemical companies, you know, plants, or maybe automobile plants or manufacturing plants or what have you, Th those kinds of industries that are environmentally damaging are almost always entirely located in black communities, mm. almost entirely. So when we talk about accessing space and you walk outside and the ash from this pelting plant is like snowflakes and it falls on your car, it falls on your clothes. Who wants to go jogging in that neighborhood when the, the air from the chemical plant is so incredibly toxic? Who wants to go out? Who even wants to open up their windows to get air through the house? because it is, it's disgusting. It's not healthy. When you wanna send your kids outside to, to play, maybe in a park or maybe in, a, in an empty lot, right? And the ground is seeped with, you know, I, I don't know what, you know? 
why would you allow your children to play in that? So yes, the environment is central to the health and welfare and safety of people in general, but certainly people of color who have been sort of cordoned off through redlining and uh, all sorts of other sort of entities that, that sort of deny you access. And you've been sort of cordoned into a place where they can be easily surveyed by you know, authorities, whether they be police or, or other types of authorities. And then they're surrounded by these kinds of you know, landfills and toxic dumps and manufacturing plants and, and the like. That's why the folks down in Louisiana, down in Baton Rouge, continuously, and they call it Cancer Alley. Mm. Why? Because they have all those oil refineries next to Black neighborhoods. And they had one of the highest rates of cancer in the United States. And the oil refineries argue, well, that they just have bad health. What about the mental health impacts of the built environment upon communities? Do you, I, I, and I want to talk about one study that's so profound that was done by Penn researchers who transformed vacant lots in the city of Philadelphia, because we have a lot of them like in Detroit. And then they did a study where they actually measure people's heart rate around who live in that community and actually decrease so it was a physiological surrogate marker of how when beautifying these empty, abandoned, vacant lots that were so ugly that it actually impact people's physical health and, and their mental health. And mental health and physical health are just so intertwined. Can you give some examples of how the built environment impacts the mental health of communities? Oh, absolutely. I mean, just think about this. When you drive through neighborhoods, right? Whether you are in the market or not, you take stock of what that neighborhood looks like. And you make assumptions about the kinds of people who live there, right? Now imagine you live in a neighborhood where people make negative assumptions. Do you really believe that is not gonna impact how you see yourself? how you see your opportunities in the world. I mean, data shows that your zip code really is a predictor of how long you're going to live. It's the best predictor actually. And in Philly, it's probably like Detroit where the, the best zip code average lifespan is 88 years and the worst zip code is 68 years. And that worst zip code is in a black community and so that average wow, lifespan of 68 shot. years is, yeah, it's, a, it's average life expectancy of someone living in Iraq. Yeah. It's a 20 year life difference within, Craig, within two or three miles. Yes, absolutely. And absolutely. And that, you think that's an accident? That is not an accident. That is by design. Hmm. That is by design. So again, so the psychological impact of daily living in an area and that's one, I think one of the reasons the city wanted to tear down buildings. It was the psychological aspect of walking down the street and seeing what had been and was no more, right? 
it's better to just have an open field than a reminder of how the disinvestment and the deterioration of a community continues. And that's a psychological thing, and it's a subtle thing, and that wreaks havoc on your well-being. Mm -hmm. It wreaks havoc on it. So, yeah, when you think about, let's say, that neighborhood that has the 88-year lifespan, Mm -hmm. it's going to look markedly different than the one that has a 68 year lifespan. And that is a visual thing as well. It's a tangible, visible thing. Lawns will be cut, flowers will be planted, street lights will work, porches will be available. All those things that have those sort of physical manifestations have psychological implications how you think about your life. Like those folks who live in that 88 zip code, Mm -hmm. they're not gonna have problems inviting their friends to their home as kids. Yeah, come over to my house, have a sleepover. And parents are not gonna have a problem letting their kids go over there to have a sleepover. But that 68, they may not be open to inviting people to their neighborhood and their Mm -hmm. parents certainly may not be open. So what does that do to a kid who, who, who thinks like, wow, I can't even have friends over. This sucks. Do you have thoughts on what are some interventions around what designers or architects or policymakers can do around the built environment to make communities healthier? I'm a physician and people will default to, well, this community with lower lifespans has poor health outcomes. They need a hospital in their community or they need a clinic in their community, increase access to healthcare. But I find that that's a band-aid to the solution, that it's more systemic than that because of these issues that, that we're talking about. Well, I mean, I would agree that it's a band-aid, but I, I, I also agree that you know, easy access to public health amenities is a necessity. So, um, so you don't have to wait two hours on the right, bus ride in order to get right. to the doctor. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I, I, but I do agree that it is. You know, it is. A, let, let's just say I think it's part. It's not the solve. I look at architects, urban planners, designers as sort of doctors for their city or their community, and what can the architecture or design community do to build the immune system of their city to be healthier? Well, I, I work in the area of, of public interest design. And, uh, and I came to public interest design through community design centers, which primarily act as the architectural and planning firm or arm of communities. So they provide professional architectural and urban planning and urban design services to neighborhoods and communities that are distressed, that probably can't pay to go to an architectural office to hire them to do these sorts of things. Because design centers believe in the necessity for the profession to provide assistance to everyone. Mm -hmm. Like 
they say, you know, like the criminal justice system, right? Like if you have a, if you have a case, like the, like, like, let's just say the law profession, like if you have a criminal case, you are guaranteed a lawyer, whether you can pay for it or not. Mm-hmm. Right. That, that is their social responsibility. That is the responsibility of that profession to the public, right. To make our lives better. That's why professions exist to make our lives better. Mm-hmm. That is, that is our charge as professions. Now, if you don't feel that that's, something you want to do, don't become a professional, do something else. Mm. And, you know, the, for the, let's say the medical, you probably know this better than I do. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but for the medical profession, like you go to the ER, you're going to get seen. No, they're not going to turn you away. Mm-hmm. Now, whether you have insurance or not, you yep. are going to get seen. It's a guarantee of service. It's a, well, it's a federal law too. Okay. Yep. So, so, he, so here's the thing. What is the architectural response to that? Where, where do we guarantee service hmm. regardless of whether you can pay? Hmm. That's where the community design centers come in. Hmm. That's what they do. And so through working, and so I've come to public interest design through this, the, the philosophy and ideology of the community design center. So I always want to work with communities and I always want to work with communities that let's say in a sense, are economically, let's put it this way, economically stretched. Like you can hire an architect to work on your high rise building. You can hire an architect to work on your mansion. You can hire an architect to handle whatever it is that you're doing downtown or redevelop some area, right? But these folks can't. It's not that they don't need it. They probably need the services more than anyone else, Mm -hmm. but they don't have access to it. And so, those are places in the communities in which I tend to find myself working and being fulfilled. Mm. I want to end with some takeaways. We talked about spatial justice in the beginning for the average listener who's not a designer or an architect. What can they do about spatial justice? Well, be aware. Be aware of your surroundings. You know, stop calling the police for people just living their lives. Be engaged. Be welcoming. You know, I, in a sense, have been very privileged. I've gone to Ivy League schools. I've got a doctorate. I'm teaching at a major global research institution. My financial condition is stable. I mean, I am, I've been incredibly, incredibly fortunate and blessed despite all the, the obstacles of, you know, being black in architecture or being a kid who grew up on the South side of Chicago, right? Who went to public schools. I'm incredibly blessed and I know that, but I can't tell you the times that I walk into a store and the guard just starts following me. I can't tell you how many times that I get pulled over and I'm literally shaking because this could be the last time I, I, am, I am around on this earth. I walk into a park. I should be able to go to a park and feel the sun on my face and mm-hmm. sit down and read a book without folks wondering what I'm doing or why I'm there. So 
I, I would argue that, you know, there are small things that you can do every day as a person in this world to make folks feel better mm. about being in the world, right? Smile, just smile at someone. I'm serious. Just smile at someone, you know, recognize that someone might be uncomfortable in a place. Do, do what you can to alleviate that. Mm. These are just things that you can do without, well, I guess you have to think about it because it's the kinds of things that people don't often do, but they don't cost anything. They don't cost anything. Mm. And they make a difference. They make a world of difference. But that's not what I would want. This is not my takeaway. Yes. I, I, I wanted to, 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 to give this takeaway. Okay. So my uncle Numa was a very clever man in the 1970s, even though it, it technically it wasn't intended for this use. He was able to argue to use city funds. They were, you know, for job training to pay for his law school degree. It was not supposed, and that literally a change the law after he was, he successfully argued that. <laughs> and so he used to say this quote to all, all of us kids. And I, I, I had to write it down because I want to make sure I get it absolutely right. I remember it, but then I misremember it. And I remember parts of it that are really cool. But so I wrote it down. So this is the, the quote. A person who doubts himself is like a man who would enlist in the ranks of his enemies and bear arms against himself. He makes his failure certain by he himself being the first person convinced of it. And so my takeaway is, or what I'd like to share is never underestimate yourself. People will do that for you. Don't be afraid to bet on yourself. This is the stuff that my parents gave me. Like, don't underestimate you and what you can achieve. And as I've gotten older, you know, I tried to tell those who will listen this saying, don't play the zero sum game, play the win-win game. There's this Bantu term, Buntu, which loosely translates that I am because we are. You can only be your best self if everyone else is their best self. Mm. And so if there's one thing that all this rambling has done, if you take away from this is that you don't have to denigrate someone to be great yourself. Your competition is with you. It's not with someone else. Mm. So don't underestimate yourself. Bet on yourself all the time. Thank you so much, Craig. I think that's a great way to end. I really appreciate you joining us today on Design Lab. I'm very glad to have been asked. This has been most enjoyable, and I, I hope I uh, didn't put some folks to sleep. But if I did, please email me so I can let folks know there is an, an insomnia solution available. <laughs> <laughs> After we wrapped our interview, I almost forgot to ask this hip-hop architect who his favorite hip-hop artists were. Here's Craig's answer. My favorites are the ones that I just reach to habitually are uh, Tribe Called Quest and yes. Public Enemy. Yeah. yeah th th that's, that's my 
that's sort of my sweet spot. What's your favorite song from the tribe? Oh man. Oh, I left my wallet in El Segundo. Oh yeah. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. On this part of the show, I'm joined by the producer of Design Lab, Rob Puglisi. Rob loved this interview with Craig Wilkins, and we used this time to reflect upon what we just heard and to think about a takeaway for all of us who are listening. Rob, that was an amazing interview. I love Craig Wilkins. You know, he actually won an award from the Cooper Hewitt Design Museum on design mind, he, for his like visionary mind and design. He just blew me away. I could see why I learned a lot during that interview, let me tell you. So Rob, you and I love music. We love hip hop. Have you ever heard of his theory or his narrative on on CDs and turntables and how that led to the rise of hip hop? Yes, I knew a little bit about, you know, kind of how hip hop came to be, but the way he broke it down and then helped me understand how space comes into all this and, and this concept of hip hop architecture. I think more people really need to hear that. Like my one takeaway from this episode is that more people need to hear his message. 100% because that message isn't out there. And, and even though Craig is an architect and a designer, a lot of his insight into urban communities is directly related to health and health care that in order to make people healthy we need to invest in these communities and think about how to reshape the built environment in those communities do you feel like you were aware of like really i mean we talk a lot about space and about space equity and things like that but like i i don't think i really fully understood it before he like, was able to articulate he... it for me this association relationship between urban design, spatial, racial justice, um, being involved in those communities and not just driving through these communities and making judgments on them. Because we have our own biases and, and you know, I, I think that's a part of where empathy comes in. Have you ever looked at ice cream as an indicator of social justice? I can't, two hour wait to get on a bus that's crazy. Like if you like, live in certain communities, you can't even get ice cream. Like that that right there, I never ever would have thought about just the power of space. And and it's not just ice cream, right? But but everybody gets it. You hear that and you're like, "What? Like you can't buy frozen stuff because it takes you 3 hours to get it home?" And you know, I think a lot about the the patients that I see and what efforts it takes for them to go to the emergency room or you know how many different transfers they have to make on a bus or subway in order to make a 15 minute doctor's appointment and and it's really them taking off an entire day of work of of trying to find babysitting in order to do a 15 minute visit with a doctor and we in healthcare we judge patients like that all the time when they are late of like, why are you 20 minutes late? Or, you know, you skipped your appointment. If you live in a certain neighborhood, if you don't come from a high economic status, it takes a lot to make a simple thing like a doctor's appointment on time. 
So what what can your average person do? You know, he said, be aware, be engaged, and be welcoming. Yeah. Do you think your average person could be aware, be be engaged, and, and be more welcoming? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you don't think so? I don't know. It sounds easy enough, but, you know, time and time again, we see examples of people being the exact opposite of these things to folks. Yeah. Seeing this through his lens and that that personal takeaway of, like, when you are in a public space and you see someone who may look a little bit different, to acknowledge that and to make that person feel welcome. That's something practical that every one of us can do because we have to recognize that not everyone feels like they have an access to a public space. Yeah, and we just have to keep having conversations like this with people like Craig and allowing ourselves to hear different perspectives and to really have more empathy for people who are different than ourselves. That's the only way things will get better. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Craig Wilkins. I thought this was a good podcast to have the week after our elections. It really gave me some hope. Do yourself a favor and follow Craig on Twitter. Read one of his amazing books. Thanks for joining us for this episode and continue to rate and give feedback to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen. It really helps others to find us. I'm your host, Bon Koo. Rob Puglisi produced this episode and our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston. See you next week.